Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Hey everybody, Kent here. As you may have heard or perhaps not heard, we had to cancel the gathering this morning, June 26th, due to the air conditioning not working in our building. Uh, it is rather hot in Knoxville this summer, and we figured you wouldn't want to sit through that, and we did not want to either. Uh, so we canceled the gathering, but we did want to offer to you the final teaching in our vision series. Uh, so here it is. Uh, pardon it if it is a little bit awkward because I'm recording it in a room by myself with a bunch microphone rather than as I would prefer, which is in a room with all of you. Uh, But we wanted to offer it to you nonetheless. Uh, Hope it's helpful. We'll see you guys next Sunday, July 3rd. On September 22nd, 2004, the hit TV show Lost debuted on ABC. It was one of the most popular shows of all time in the era before Netflix and streaming services were on the scene, which I realize either sounds like ages ago or yesterday, depending on your age. The initial season of Lost averaged over 11 million U.S. viewers per episode. Wildly popular show. I remember getting together with 20 plus people each week to watch the episode as it aired on TV, which I'm realizing is an experience that only makes sense to people born before the year 2000. But what Lost would eventually become known for, even more than how many people watched it or how good the show was, was actually how it ended. The finale of the show absolutely bombed. Like, it was atrocious. Videos began to circulate on YouTube detailing the 25-plus unanswered questions and massive plot holes that the show never even attempted to resolve. Hit pieces were written online about how the ending of the show actually ruined the six full seasons of the show. People wanted refunds for the DVD box sets that they had purchased because the show was now unwatchable to them. One of the creators of Lost even started pitching his new projects to the general public by promising that they, quote, wouldn't end the way that Lost did, which to me is so funny. Imagine if a local chef here in Knoxville opened their second restaurant and up at the top of the menu, it said, don't worry, the food here doesn't taste as bad as it does at my other restaurant. My point is that the ending of this show was incredibly, notoriously, famously bad. So what went wrong with Lost? I mean, that, that's the type of question that you guys pay me the big bucks to answer, right, on Sundays. I'm sure that's the pressing question that all of us listening to this recording are thinking right now at this moment. Well, here's my stab at it. They lost the plot line of the show. The, the writers of the show somehow, someway, completely forgot the things that made the show what it was. They, they forgot the things that made the show great. The show was built on this constant rhythm of building mystery and intrigue for episodes or even entire seasons and then resolving those mysteries in, in very emotionally satisfying sorts of ways. But at the end of the show, they, they just didn't resolve any of it. It's like they just forgot what kind of show that they were all along. They completely lost the plot line of the show. And I bring that up, one, because I love the show and I'm still a little bit bitter about how it ended and this felt like a safe place for me to vent. 
But two, because it's an exercise, I think, in just how easy it is to completely lose sight of a plot line. How, how easy it is to just forget and neglect the things that make you unique or different or intriguing and how easy it is to turn anything, even a show with a multi-million dollar budget and top-notch producers and writers into something that it's not. And if the lost situation tells us anything, it's that it, it is really easy to become known more for the things that you do poorly than for the things that made you great. And I don't know if you've noticed or watched the news or scrolled through Twitter or just if you've been out in public and opened your eyes very much at all, but Christianity right now in America isn't typically known for what it's great at. Depending on who you talk to, we're a little more known for what we're doing poorly. And sometimes I, I wonder if that's because we too have lost the plot line. We've lost the idea of what makes Christianity what it is. I wonder if there are ways that we have forgotten or at least significantly neglected the thing that makes us us as followers of Jesus. And I want to talk about at least one of those things in this teaching. So if you've got a Bible nearby or you've got it on your phone, you're welcome to go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. should be pretty easy to find. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1 here in just a moment. If you've been with us the past couple weeks at the gathering, uh, you know that we've been working through a vision series where we've just been unpacking the things that we want to be most known for as a church. And this morning, I, I want to bring all of that to a close by talking about the last component of our vision and I want to briefly unpack for you a key part of the plot line of the Bible. And I want us to look at how God's people, including us, have sometimes lost sight of that plot line. Because I think that obviously has tremendous relevance for how we go about being the church here in the 21st century in Knoxville, Tennessee. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's kick things off in Genesis chapter 1, like I said, starting in verse 27. Take a look with me there. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God, and notice this language right here, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we just read that God gives, God creates humanity, both male and female, and immediately right after creating them, he gives them a job to do. He, he blesses them with land and vegetation and food and provision and raw materials and each other as human beings. But after he blesses them with all of that, he makes it abundantly clear that their job is not just to kick back and enjoy it all. Like God does not create Adam and Eve and place them in a hammock with a Mai Tai in their hand. He, he creates them, he blesses them, and then he gives them a job to do. He actually wants them to do something with the blessing that they've inherited. Specifically, he wants them to rule over and subdue the rest of creation. He wants them to order and structure the world around them in such a way that it thrives and flourishes as a result of what they do. He blesses Adam and Eve so that they might bless the rest of the world in return. The blessing wasn't just for them. It was for the world through them. Hopefully you see that. Hopefully you see that there in Genesis chapter 1. 
And notice that it says that all of this, everything we just mentioned, was a part of Adam and Eve being created, quote, in God's image. That, that was at the very beginning of our passage. That word image could be translated likeness or resemblance. It was the word used in the ancient world for when people would set up a statue or a memorial of someone. So hypothetically, if there was a statue of me, Kent, which just to be clear, there never should be, not that anyone was actively considering it, but it, it, if there was, that would be called an image of Kent in the ancient world. And I tell you all of that to make this simple point. Evidently, humans receiving blessing from God and using that to bless the rest of creation is all part of how we show off to the world what God is like. That's the idea of something being made in God's image. Being blessed and becoming a blessing to the world around us is literally hardwired into who we are as human beings. It's not just something that we should do. It's something that we were literally created to do. We We see that in the first chapter of the Bible. We are blessed in order to become a blessing. But if you know the story of the Bible, things don't actually function that way for very long. It wasn't long before Adam and Eve forgot their purpose to bless the world around them and instead saw the garden as existing for just their enjoyment alone. They ate of the fruit they weren't supposed to eat from. They did it in the hope that it might allow them to become like God themselves rather than image the true God to the world around them. Instead of becoming a blessing to the world, they decided to take and keep the blessing for themselves. They decided to let God's blessing stop, to let it terminate on just them alone. And thus begins the aggressive, rapid, downward spiral of humanity starting with this massive misstep by Adam and Eve in the garden, all of humanity follows suit and things grow worse and worse and worse to the point that one day God says he regrets making human beings altogether because all they seem to do is hurt and harm and exploit each other and his creation. All of humanity has lost sight of what they were created to do. So God starts over and eventually He starts over with another man and his wife. Turn with me or follow along with me to Genesis chapter 12, if you want to look that up. Genesis chapter 12. This time, we're going to read about a man named Abram and his wife, Sarai. God is going to attempt to make them into a new version of the blessing that he intended Adam and Eve to be in the beginning. So look with me, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Verse two, I will make you into a great nation and I will, look at that next word, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you, look at this next line, you will be a blessing. God says, I will bless you, Abram, Sarai, in order that you both might be a blessing to the world around you. Strangely familiar concept to what we read about in Genesis chapter 1. And we get a little bit more in verse 3. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, or that could read all nations or all ethnicities on earth, will be blessed through you. Fascinating. So God wants to do with Abram and Sarai what he attempted to do through Adam and Eve, except now he doesn't just want to bless creation itself. He wants to bless people 
across all of creation. He says he's going to make Abram and Sarai into an entire nation. And then that nation is going to bless all the other nations in return. They're going to be this shining example of what the God of the universe is truly like. They're going to show the world around them how God intended the world to be, the beauty and creativity and peace and justice that results when God is king and when people live life with him. That's what God wants Abram and Sarai to do. But if you know this story, there's one pretty massive problem with that plan. One pretty massive problem with Abram and Sarai becoming a great nation. The problem is that they don't have any kids. And generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of two people nations out there. So if they're going to become a nation, they're going to need offspring. And the problem actually goes a lot deeper than that. We find out in the very next verse of Genesis chapter 12 that Abram is already 75 years old and his wife is around the same age. We find out a little later in the story that, quote, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarai, which is a very delicate way of saying that biological children just wasn't in the cards for Abram and Sarai at this point in the story. But God said that he was going to make their offspring into a great nation. So Abram and Sarai hatch a plan of their own. They decide to take matters into their own hands and have Abram conceive a child with their servant, Hagar, which in that day and age wasn't as uncommon as it might seem, but still pretty ill-advised plan, to say the least. And that's not at all what God meant when he made this promise to Abram. When he said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing, he most definitely did not mean sleep with someone you're not married to. But this is when we remember that human beings have never been great at receiving and comprehending God's blessing, right? So just like Adam and Eve forgot that they were supposed to be a blessing and took the blessing for themselves, so did Abram and Sarai. They forgot that God was going to bless them and instead decided to reach out and manufacture a blessing themselves. Instead of being a blessing, they decided to turn the blessing in on themselves. God's people lose sight of the plot line yet again. But God still works and moves through all of that, believe it or not. Turns out he still does create a great nation out of Abram and Sarai's family tree. And he showers that nation with blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Generations later, a famine hits God's people. But God orchestrates an elaborate plan for his people to be provided for in Egypt, one of the great empires of the ancient world with tons of resources. The problem is they eventually become enslaved by that empire and God rescues them out of that in a remarkable show of power. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. God provides for them miraculously as they wander through the desert where they could have died without his provision in a couple days. And then he delivers them into a land called Canaan, a land, quote, flowing with milk and honey. So like I said, God showers them with blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing, even in the midst of severe hardship. And the goal with all of this, with God blessing them in this way, was that they, Israel, would become a blessing. That they would become and continue to be, in the language of the prophets, a, quote, light to the nations. That they would fulfill the calling that God originally gave Adam and Eve to show the world what life looks like when God is king. And occasionally, they succeed at all that. Occasionally. But mostly, they fail. 
In fact, they fail in some pretty spectacular and facepalm-worthy sorts of ways. There are so many examples of their failure throughout the Old Testament that I could cite here. But at the bottom of all of it, I would argue was this. Israel misunderstood the purpose of God's blessing. They thought the blessing was meant to end with them. So they took it, enjoyed it, and just let it stop there with them. Instead of remembering that God blessing them was never just about them, it was his way of blessing the rest of the world. Sharon Hod Miller puts it this way in some of her teaching, some of her commentary on the book of Amos in the Old Testament. This is about to be a very long quote, but I don't think I can say it any better than she does in what I'm about to read. She says this, Mistakenly, the Israelites hoarded their opulence, meaning their wealth, their ease of life, as, quote, blessing. They saw the provision as an end in itself, a gift from God to be indulged. They also drew security from it. They took pride and comfort in being more powerful than the countries around them. They measured success by having more of it than their neighbors. God rebuked them for their greed and in the strongest possible terms, because look at this next line, he viewed blessing quite differently than the Israelites. God did not intend for the Israelites to prosper simply to luxurate in it. He did not provide them with wealth simply as an assurance of security. And he did not allow them ease of life simply to grow complacent. I love this next sentence she delivers. She says, the blessings of God were never meant to be stored up like grain. Just as Israel was meant to be a light to the nations and the church a light in the world, everything we are given has a greater purpose. May we steward our blessings accordingly. That's it right there. Blessing was never ever meant to end with us as followers of Jesus. It has always been and will always be about us being a blessing, about us showing the world what life is like when God is king. That was what God intended to do with Abram, with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's what he intended to do with Abram and Sarai by making them into a great nation. And it's what he intended to do with Israel as a whole. And it's what he intends to do with his church today. Today. So with all of that in mind, I want you to look at one final passage with me that should make a lot of sense in light of everything that we've just walked through. This one is found in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read 14 through 16 here. Here's what it says. You are the light of the world. So, so here, real quickly, Jesus is now talking to all followers of Jesus. Anyone who claims to know and love the God of the Bible, they collectively are now the light that he always wanted Israel to be. He says to all of them, you, you all are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that, and here's the purpose behind it all, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So we followers of Jesus are now the light of the world. But Jesus says, nobody hides a light like that. 
Nobody lights a lamp and then hides it under a bowl. They, they put it up high on a stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. That's what we are supposed to be. We are light in order to offer that light to everyone else. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. God did not bless us so that the blessing could end with us. He blessed us to bless the world. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Abram and Sarai, just like the nation of Israel, he now calls us to do the same. So here, I think, is where this idea cuts to the very heart of our series. The past two weeks, we've talked about being Jesus-centered as a church family, and we've talked about being church family, about the incredible blessing that we have first in the love and grace of Jesus, and then the incredible blessing that it is to have other followers of Jesus to walk alongside us in this journey. Those two things are, to put it so mildly, incredible blessings that you and I have received through Jesus. Incredible blessings. But if everything that we just talked about from the scriptures is true, what are blessings for? What are they actually for? Are they just for kicking back and enjoying? For, for storing up for ourselves? For sitting and just marinating in them from now until when Jesus comes back? Absolutely not. Blessings are for sharing. We, you and I, are the light of the world. We're a city on a hill, and a city built on a hill cannot and should not ever be hidden. People don't light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Light is meant to serve a purpose, and if it doesn't serve a purpose, it's not worth having. God's blessings to us as followers of Jesus are never meant to terminate with us. They are meant to be shared, imparted, distributed. God blesses us in order to make us a blessing. So we have a word for all of this here at City Church. We call it mission. We are a Jesus-centered family on mission. And that mission is to share and offer and channel everything that God has given us with those who do not yet have it, with those who don't yet know what it's like. So, so listen, just personally, I, I love what we have here at City Church. I love that we have a community that is fixated on and motivated by the good news of Jesus. I love that we have places and spaces where we can remember all of that and be reminded of all of that. I love that we have a really close-knit group of people here at City Church. Like, I even love that sometimes it makes other people uncomfortable how close we are with each other and how well we know each other and how often we spend time together. I, I love that we like hanging out with each other, like, a lot. So much that we get on each other's nerves sometimes. I love that we care for one another and sacrifice for one another and serve one another. All of that is amazing. I literally would not trade it for the world, and I hope you wouldn't either. But... But I do hope we realize none of that exists just for us. It's not just for us. It's for the world. The, the reason that we remember and celebrate the gospel isn't just that we need it. It's so the world around us can see what a life centered on the gospel looks like. As John Piper himself once said, mission exists because worship doesn't. Us being centered on the gospel is actually so that more and more people might be drawn to do the same. The reason we have a close-knit community that operates like a family isn't just for our sake. It's for the world's sake. 
The reason we've been blessed is to be a blessing. This is the plot line of the scriptures beginning to end. To put it even more emphatically, if we keep on being exactly who we are right now as a church and no one ever comes to know Jesus or is drawn towards Jesus through that, we will have missed the point entirely. God created this, you and I, living as a Jesus-centered family. He created that for the world. He blessed us with that so that we might be a blessing. That's what the whole thing is about. That's what it's always been about. And I so badly do not want us to forget that as a church. I so badly don't want us to replace the mission of God with just showing up on Sundays and maybe one night a week for life group and doing church together. That is a bad trade and it misses entirely who God has created us to be. And being what God has created us to be is the most exciting thing in the universe to be a part of. So in light of all of that, I just want to end with some practical questions for us. I want to help us all best I can put this vision of being on mission into practice in our day-to-day lives. Three questions for you, and then we'll be done. First, who do you know that doesn't know? Who do you know that doesn't know? So, So who do you know right now that does not have a relationship with Jesus? Could be most anybody. Could be a coworker, classmate, close friend you grew up with, roommate, another mom from the preschool drop off where you drop off your kids, another dad on your kids' t ball team, a neighbor, the barista that you see every day or multiple times a day, depending on your caffeine addiction. I don't know who it is, but, but who is it? Who has God put you in regular proximity to who does not yet know who God is and what he's like? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know if they know Jesus or not. Like, I'm not sure. Great. So you figured out your first step, figure out whether or not that person knows Jesus, not meaning you necessarily ask them that question point blank. The next time you see them, you may not know them that well yet, or, or maybe you do, but either way, your objective now is to figure out if they have a relationship with Jesus, which conveniently is in many ways, the same as getting to know them as a person. Ask them what they like to do in their spare time. Ask them what's really good about their life right now. Ask them what's really difficult about their life right now, assuming that you know them well enough to ask that question. You'll find that as you get to know people, it becomes easier and easier to figure out where they're at spiritually. The more you talk to them, you'll find out whether or not the kingdom of Jesus factors into their day-to-day thinking or not. And I'll just add on this one before we move on, Uh, just because a person says they go to church or or uses the word God in a conversation doesn't necessarily mean they know Jesus. It might, but it also might not. What you're looking for is tangible fruit of the Spirit, evidence that the good news of Jesus is impacting their life in regular, ongoing ways. And if so, great. You've just met another follower of Jesus that you can talk to about spiritual things, and they can encourage you, and you can encourage them. That's awesome. But if not, if it doesn't seem like they know Jesus, you've just found someone God may want you to be on mission with and on mission for. So who do you know right now that doesn't know Jesus? Who do you regularly come into contact with who's in that category? Second question I want to ask you, how do you get them, that person, around God's people? How do you get them around God's people? So assuming that you've identified somebody that you are in regular proximity to, 
who doesn't know Jesus, start asking the question, how can I get them opportunities to see me and my community live life together? And, and I don't necessarily mean here on Sunday. So this is where we remember that we are a family for the purpose of mission, right? We're, we're blessed to be a blessing. And according to Matthew chapter five, we are a city on a hill, not a one man show on top of a hill, a city, a community of Jesus followers that regularly interacts with one another in a way that shows the world what God is like. If you don't have a community like that right now, please go back and refer to last week's teaching that Eric gave on family. But what your friend or coworker or neighbor ultimately needs, if they don't know Jesus, is to see that city on a hill in action. They need an up-close view of what life looks like when Jesus is king. They need to see how we interact with each other and sacrifice for one another and care for one another. In short, they need to see the way that we love one another. Jesus actually puts it this way in John 13, verse 35. He says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In other words, Jesus is of the impression that if people see often enough how we love and care for each other within the community of Jesus, they will realize that something is different about it. And eventually they will come to know that we are disciples of Jesus and that that's why we interact with each other in that way. But for them to see that sort of thing, they actually need to be around it every once in a while. So how can you get them around church family? This is why we encourage our life groups to have what we call rhythms, regular time that they spend together outside of a churchy type of setting. So the random non-Christian friend who is in your life right now may not want to attend a church service with you, and they may not want to go over to somebody's house where you and a bunch of other Christians study the Bible or confess your deepest, darkest sins, but they may absolutely want to hit up that new restaurant in town with you and a few other people from your life group. They may absolutely want to go to that brewery and play trivia with you and some of your friends who are followers of Jesus. They may absolutely want to go to a coffee shop and and kind of get work done, kind of procrastinate with you and a few other people from your life group. You can be creative with it. There's a lot of different ways to make it happen. But ask the question, how do I get them around church family to see the way that we interact with one another and then do it? And finally, Flip that question around as well. In other words, how do you bring God's people to them? How do you bring God's people, church family, to the people that don't yet know Jesus? One of the most eye-opening, helpful things that anyone has ever taught me about living on mission is this. Don't just try to get non-church people to come to your church things. (laughs) Go to their things. So often as followers of Jesus, we spend the majority of our energy trying to get people who don't yet follow Jesus to come to our thing, attend our church, try out our small group, come to this Christian concert, which is still a very weird one to me, but it is a thing. Come to this thing. We try to get non-Christians to come to the things that we do as Christians. And there's occasions where that works really, really well. But I would also suggest that if you want to communicate to the other person that you care about them, you should also go to the things that they do, not just invite them to your things, even if they're not fun things to do. So maybe your non-Christian coworker has a work party or a work function to go to, and they ask you if you'll go with them because they are actively dreading going to it alone. Go to it, even if you're not excited about it. 
go to it because they asked you. Uh, maybe somebody you know that doesn't follow Jesus is going to watch a football game and they invite you and you absolutely hate sports, like you despise them. Go anyway, even if you're not excited about it. Don't just invite non-church people to attend your thing. Go to theirs. I'm telling you so often that makes people feel so cared for as human beings and also makes them more inclined to come to something you invite them to later. So just a few weeks ago, uh, Eric and Sarah who usually lead music for us on Sunday mornings. Uh, they moved in basically right across the street from our house. It's awesome. We're likely going to annoy the crap out of each other and I'm going to love it so much. It's going to be awesome. But also, when they moved in, they met their next-door neighbor. We'll, we'll just call her Haley. And Haley is super into planning events for the neighborhood to hang out together. So she invited all four of us, me and Anna, Eric, and Sarah, to go to a planning meeting for an upcoming neighborhood event. And since we just met her, I'm sure it was just a formality. She was probably thinking, no way are they going to come to this planning event for somebody that they just met. Well, we show up to it. And you could just tell in Haley's posture that she was almost a little bit surprised and caught off guard that we actually showed up to this thing. And once we were there, we just start to introduce ourselves to the people there. We got to know them. We cracked jokes with them. And then we offered to bring stuff for the upcoming event that they were planning with whatever they needed to make the event happen. And so now Haley is wanting to plan playdates with our kids. She's wanting to get together with the other families in the neighborhood with us. All of this is happening simply because she invited us to a thing that she thought we would never come to, and we showed up. And what's going to happen inevitably as she invites us to more and more stuff and we show up to it together is that she's going to see how me and Anna and Eric and Sarah interact with one another as the community of Jesus. And I, for one, am praying that she sees something about it that is distinctive, that stands out to her. And, and I'm praying that it leads to some questions about why we treat one another in that way, why we interact with each other in that way, how we love one another. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit uses that to draw her to himself. Do you see what that is? It's simply bringing the community of Jesus to her. It's showing up to the thing that she invited us to. It's seeing our blessing, our relationship with each other as a means by which to bless the world. That is always what God has called his people to do. It's what he calls his followers to do today. And it's what we were created for as followers of Jesus. All we've got to do is follow Jesus into it. That's what it means to be on mission. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for um, sending Jesus as the ultimate missionary to planet Earth. Thank you that you did not leave us to our forgetful nature when it comes to blessing the world. Thank you that instead you sent Jesus to show us what that's like, to model that for us and how he interacted with people and how he interacted with his followers that you helped him become the blessing that you always wanted your people to be. And thank you that now you have filled us, your followers, with the same spirit that raised him from the dead so that we might become the blessing to the world that you always desired your people to be. God, would you help us to be open to that? Would you help us look for opportunities to do that? And God, ultimately, would you use it to draw more and more people towards you and towards your kingdom? God, we ask for your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen.